KB Belcher. Welcome to Crown the Bay of Short Stories and Poetry for November 17th, 2023. Hello, my name is Terrence O'Donnell, and I'm back for your digital village with more fictional stories and poetry from Medium.com, and then this week I've got one from Substack.com. So I need to do a little advertising to get it out of the way. So once a week podcast is available to listen to on every podcast platform out there. It's also in the blog section of my website at Cronabeha at Substack.com and now Cronabeha on YouTube. My shows are free to subscribe to, but I do have a donations tab on the RSS.com webpage as seen in the link with the newsletter and on my website at www.cronabeha.com. Think of it as passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. Disclosure for anyone listening on the apps other than the link I provide in the Medium.com newsletter. In order to read the stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription to Medium. And for today, I also have an environmental fiction story for you from a Substack writer. So you'll need a subscription for that one if you want to read it. So even though I provide links to the stories and poems in the newsletters, the difficulty will be reading the complete stories and poems as they're paywall by the authors, and I have no control over that. A little about me. I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Shauna Key, an Irish storyteller. I want you to imagine we're sitting together under the village oak tree, Cronabea, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life, as I read these stories and poems to you. So this week I've got five short stories for you, varying themes. I hope you enjoy them. One other quick note. I've decided to do away with the Irish music at the end of the show. I'm running into copyright, I'm running into copyright issues in Eastern Europe with YouTube, and I also thought not everyone likes Irish music necessarily. So unless I get a massive protest, we'll live, we'll live without it. So let's get to my first story of the week here. First one I have for you is called Odysseus and the Oath of a Warrior by Gillian Spiridon. She had lived through life upon life, and for what? This is published in Juliet's Storybook back on October 8th. The only mortal who had never taken Ambrosia was Odysseus. But Athena would not let him rest. His soul, bidden by Hades and Thanatos, instead went through cycle upon cycle, what was called reincarnation by mortal means. Odysseus was the only mortal who could lay claim to such fame, until the lifetime when he was born as she. Odysseus, called Odette in this life, born to a linguistics professor and a retired ballerina stood before a mirror each day, seeing lank hair and dark eyes, even though her dreams were alight with wars from times she should not have been able to remember. It seemed that Odysseus, tired of the wear and tear to his soul, had not drunk of the river Lathe upon his last cycle through the underworld. It was a crime he, no, she, would never admit to have committed. When Odette was eighteen, she bought her first sword. It felt right in her hands as she held it up to the light. In another age, she might have run the blade against her long locks, shearing the hair from her head, before she went off to battle for the betterment of lives she would never know. The truth was, Odette could decide to war of the gods, if only her chaos were not a secret of the utmost proportions. Behind her lips were so many stories, so many untold narratives, so many lifetimes lived in agony. In truth, she wanted no part of the myths anymore. She wanted no fame or glory. All she wanted was peace. All she longed for was retribution for all the years her soul had been in turmoil. One day, Hades would see Persephone torn from his grasp. One day, Thanatos would see what he loved most was destroyed before his very eyes. 
one day Athena would have her power, that which she valued above all else, stolen from her. Odette had foreseen these things as if they were visions behind her eyelids. She was no Cassandra, cursed to see things she could never change, no matter how the years passed. She was no muse, bound by the allure of crowds or the moodiness of artists the world over. She was no god, doomed to lust after wealth and power, as if those things were the only sustenance in the universe. No, Odette was a warrior whose sword had been hidden from her for far too long. Soon would come the day when she would stand triumphant against the gods. She would need no king or queen, no drama or tragedy, no ballad or tome. The days of epics were going to come to an end. The long-awaited story would wind out its reams, a scroll being unfurled, until the day she was finally free from the burden of being someone else's savior. The hero they had been grooming for centuries would be the gods undoing, slowly, slowly, like blood dripping from an open wound. My next story is is a scary one. Mark of a Monster, Everybody Has an Inner Demon by Catherine Moore, published in the Kraken Lore. I have a monster under my skin. He's been there as long as I can remember. He whispers a constant background hum to my life. My mother knew I was different when I was born. She was sighted, a gift that brought joy and despair in equal measures. She knew from the first moment I emerged, silent and curious, that I was not like the others. She saw the creature behind my eyes and was terrified. When I was four, I stole a girl's voice. She had taken my toy, a straw doll with a beautiful patterned scarf, so I snatched it back. She screwed up her little fist, face red and furious, threw back her head and screamed. A little voice inside my mind thought, wouldn't it be nice if she stopped screaming? And she did. She stopped screaming. She stopped talking. She didn't utter a sound for months. I wasn't allowed to play with the other children anymore. When I was seven, I broke a man's arm. He grabbed me by the scruff of the neck for some imagined slight and shook me hard. The voice inside my mind said, wouldn't it be nice if he let go? There was an audible crack as his arm snapped, punctuated by a sudden shout of pain. My mother went to the elders and begged for their help seeing some dreadful outcome of my future. I never knew what she promised them in exchange, but they offered a solution of sorts. A prison for my monster tattooed on my skin. A cage to keep him contained, separate. A chance for me to be alone in my mind, powerless like normal children. The inside of the shaman's hut was filled with incense so strong it shrouded the corners in a smoky darkness. The torchlight flickered on glass pots lining the walls, briefly illuminating their contents before hiding them again. I could hear my mother's anxious breath as she stood close to me, her feet shifting on the hard floor. The shaman beckoned me forward, thrusting a cup into my hands. Drink, he instructed, for the pain. I took a sip and recoiled at the harsh taste, eyes watering. Coughing, I held the cup away from my face. Drink, the shaman demanded again. I gulped the liquid and fought the urge to vomit. The hut began to slip to the side as I fell into a stupor. I felt my body rising as I was lifted onto the table, the air cooling my exposed skin. As the needle touched me, my whole body erupted in agony. My monster howled inside my head, his fury pounding in my skull. But the shaman muttered his charms as he worked, and gradually the cries faded into the background. My flesh became hot. 
a scorching following the path the needle wove. Patterns emerged in the wake, a curling vine encircling my arms, my legs, my torso, tiny leaves sprouting at the joints, surprisingly beautiful for a jail. As the shaman's muttering increased in volume, the vines began to shine. They flared crimson for a moment as he added the last twirl, then the light faded and they settled into my skin, a black warning of my hidden demon. I slept for days, tossing and turning with a fever, tormented by dreams that were too real. When at last I roused, my mother cried tears of joy, stroking my face as if she hadn't done since I was a babe. Now the monster is caged under my skin, unable to break free. He prowls the delicate swirls of his prison, searching, searching for a way out. A tiny mistake in the pattern, a scar that bisects the charm. He is contained, but not as the elders had hoped. My mind is not silent, and I am not alone. I have learned to pretend not to hear his sly suggestions, to turn away from the power looking inside of me, but it's only a matter of time. My monster waits for his chance to escape, and I wait with him, anticipation coiled inside of me. What could we achieve together? Now, this next story is the one I told you about earlier. It comes out of a writer from Substack.com. It's an, it's an environmental story, and this is part one of three. I'll be reading the other two parts in subsequent weeks. It's called The Glacier, part one. A melancholic work of climate fiction in three parts, as I mentioned, by Antonio Milanio. So he notes here, I haven't done any fiction in a while. It was time to change that. The following short story, divided into three parts, follows the story of Lucija as she observes, over decades, the slow disappearance of the fictional Mount Treglov Glacier. In part one, Lucija, just a child, visits the lake at the foot of the glacier with her grandfather. In part two, she returns with her husband. And in part three, she visits for the last time in her life with her son and his children. This is a story about changing Earth, the terrible loss we all carry, and in the end, hope for a better future. Always hope. Enjoy. The narrow great tongue snakes down the steep incline, paving its way from just below the range's highest peak, where it covers the easternmost shoulder and into the high meadow nourishing Lake Bohan. The small greenish pool lays nestled on the mountain's close embrace, a jewel among barren desolation, and forms a popular camping destination, attracting people from across the region and the rare visitor beyond. A dozen colorful tents stand dispersed on its shores, their thin plastic walls flapping in the soft August breeze. Sizzling barbecues and children's laughter pierce the alpine stillness. Ahead, and much to Tomo's annoyance, a drone buzzes and whines, its owner carefully maneuvering the high winds. Lucidia, sitting on a mossy boulder, dips her toes into the crystal clear water. She cries out in pain, surprised by the freezing cold. Tomo laughs. Told you, dear. That lake never warms. He points up. It's fed right from the glacier, or was, at least. Now it's mainly the rains that fill it. Lucidia isn't deterred. She submerges her lower calves and then bravely lifts herself from the boulder to stand on the lake's ground. The water comes up to her knees, and she breathes hard, giggling all the while. Careful out there. She ignores her grandfather's warning and wades along the shoreline. She can barely feel anything below her knees now and marvels at the sight of her feet on the slippery rounded rocks. They seem to belong to someone else, a person older and braver than her. Curious small fists examine her toes, and for a moment she's scared they'll bite her. 
distracted, her right foot drops away, finding a narrow depression. She loses balance, and with nothing to hold on to, she plunges into the water. The cold is magnificent. Immediately, the world ceases to exist, and all that is, all that will ever be, is that biting, breathtaking onslaught of tiny needles on skin. There is no breath, no movement, no time. For a moment, all there is is pure sensation. Something in her awakens. Her arms and legs flail, her body waging war against the lake's icy calling. She breaks through the surface and gasps, sucking in huge gulfs of air as she tries to stay afloat. Her heart beats with fury, the cold water contracting her veins and sending adrenaline coursing through her blood. She feels a strong, familiar hand grip her arm. It pulls her up, and she sees Tomo's face, his kind eyes filled with concern. Are you all right? His voice is urgent. Lysidia nods, shivering and coughing up water. She notices people watching from the shorelines and feels embarrassed. The drone circles them like an angry wasp. Tomo helps her to the shore, and minutes later, she sits wrapped in blankets, watching the blue sky and the clouds that linger around Mount Trego's glassy peak, like lazy little sheep. She laughs, feeling a strange wave of joy wash over her. What's so funny? She turns to him. The sun is slowly warming her up, but she is still shaking. Nothing, did I. I just feel so alive. They get the gas cooker going, and she watches tiny bubbles plop and disappear on the water surface. She desperately wanted to make a campfire, as the others did, but Tomo refused, saying they'd destroyed enough already. He didn't explain what he meant, and she didn't push the matter. Can I put it in now? Yes, two should be enough. She drops the tea bags into the boiling water and notices how fast the color spreads. In a moment, water becomes tea, and the sweet smell of berries wafts into the tent. Tomo unwraps the bjarks and puts the tin foil into a designated paper bag. When out in nature, you must always follow the golden rules, he said on their pika. Minimize your impact, be mindful of your surroundings, and leave nothing behind. Nothing, you hear? She nodded at the time, but hadn't understood. Nature is great and big, right? Why should they have to be so careful? He hands her a large piece, and she tears into it, surprised by her appetite. She misses the meat she's used to. In her family, no dish goes without, but savors the Burek's fatty dough and diced potatoes. As they eat and drink, the silence is only broken by the occasional bird song and the rustling of the shrubbery in the wind. Lucidia watches a family on the opposite shore f playing frisbee in the dying light, their faint cries carrying across the lake. I used to come here with your baka, Tomo says, breaking the quiet. We'd stay for days just reading, hiking in the mountains, and uh, other things. Oh, she loved it here. She could sit here for hours by the lake, watching the sunrise and set. Lucidia had never met her grandmother, but she's often heard how much alike they are. She'd seen a picture of her as a child once, and it would like looking into a mirror. It was a different time back then, Tomo continues. There were no drones, no loud music, no phones. People came here to find peace. Lucidia nods, feeling a curious sense of nostalgia for a time she'd never known. She wonders what it would be like to see the lake without tents, without people, just her and someone she loved, perhaps, lying in the grass and watching the stars. Look at the glacier, Tomo says, his eyes intense. It's nothing now, almost gone. You should have seen it 30 or 40 years ago. It covered that entire range over there, broad as the mountains themselves and perfectly white, almost blinding when the sun was right. Did you ever climb to the top, did I? He laughs. Oh, yes, and it almost cost me my life. I borrowed some old crampons, a bivy sack, and an ice pick from my brother and went up on the glacier alone. 
fell into a narrow crevasse halfway up and almost didn't make it out. It was freezing. I remember, and I had to decide if I should push on or turn around. The day was getting late. And what did you do? I continued, of course. A couple of hours later, I reached the summit and yelled at the top of my lungs. Felt like the king of the world. I'm telling you, dear, nothing beats that feeling of challenging yourself and making it to the other side. I never felt so alive before or after. He stares into the distance at games of memories, happiness, and melancholia for what he lost. The descent was even harder, mind you. It always is. I went down the southern side, opposite from what you see now. It got dark, and I had to camp out on a narrow ledge, freezing my ass off. In the morning, I made the descent and hiked into the village, feeling like the greatest man that's ever lived. Told everyone about it, and maybe half of them believed me. I believe you, Dida. Thanks, dear. I know you do. Will you go up again? A sad smile crosses his face, warm and cold at the same time. Oh, no, dear. I'm too old. This lake is my final stop now. When you're older, you can do it and wave to me from the summit. I'll be here, lying in the sun, with my feet in the water and a cold beer in my hand. Lucidia shuffles closer and hugs her grandpa's arm. I will do that, Dida. I swear, as soon as Mom and Dad let me. I know you will. I hope I'll be there to see it. My next story is a scary ghost story. It's called Fate, a short story about love and loss by Tsilin Sam, published in the Taoist Online. Trigger warning. The content may contain elements that could be considered unsettling or frightening. Reader discretion is advised. In this case, listener discretion. It's been two weeks since Jin's funeral, but Mei Fong was not back to her old self yet. I wondered if she was in love with that boy. While she did not refuse him outright, their relationship seemed rather one-sided to me, as it was always him who pursued her. And yet, this was more than just grief for the passing of a friend. If this were to continue, my daughter might be joining him in the realms of the dead soon. The thought of dead spirits sent a chill down my spine. Tonight, the gates of hell would be open for the spirits to roam free during the Hungry Ghost Festival. I used to make offerings to the spirits on the 14th day of the seventh month every year, but the current situation at home had left me unmotivated. I was too drained of energy to do much since the funeral. A sudden wail from Mayfong's bedroom snapped me out of my thoughts. There she goes again, I whispered to myself as I closed my eyes, and prayed that she would be well again. I would do anything, just let me have my daughter back. I walked slowly up the stairs with my shoulders hunched into feet. I wondered if we should call a shaman. Clearly, this had been going on for too long. My heart broke at the sight of Mei Fong, who looked disheveled with sunken cheeks and dark eye circles. She used to have so much joy in her life. My wife, Su Ling, was already sitting on the floor next to Mei Fong's bed. She insisted that we get treatment for our daughter, but I knew that herbal medicine would not be able to cure her broken heart. Or maybe it's not just a broken heart. I shook my head as if that would get rid of the unholy thought that had been plaguing me since the whole thing started. I would have to call a shaman right away. We were very lucky that the shaman could come for a home visit on such short notice. Just as he arrived, Mei Fong's droopy eyes suddenly opened wide and she shrieked, Get away from me! The shaman muttered in a low voice to us as he confirmed my worst fear. She had been possessed by an evil spirit. He would have to perform an exorcism to repel the spirit from her body. Su Ling fainted upon hearing this. Suddenly, Mei Fong leapt from the bed, stepped on her mother, and started crawling on all fours towards us. Like a reptile, I thought to myself, shaking in fear. This is not Mei Fong. It can't be. 
The shaman just started chanting when Mayfong grabbed him by the throat and snapped his neck. She threw him across the room with an unnatural force. His body went flying as if he was a rag doll. I cowered and pleaded for my life. Who are you? Please spare me and my family. We'll do anything. Please leave us alone. Get out of my daughter's body. Don't you know who I am? You killed me. What? I didn't kill anyone. Maybe I should kill your wife now. Wait, I... No. Are you Jin? I stammered. Mei Fong's lips curled into a sinister smile. What do you want? I asked. My heart was pounding in my chest. I want to marry your daughter. You would arrange a wedding for us tonight. My heart fell. I had heard about ghost marriage. In fact, there have been two such weddings this year in our small town. From what I understood, the bones of the bride had to be buried together with the groom in the same coffin. My daughter will share a bond with this evil spirit when hell freezes over. My wheels were spinning in my mind as I tried to think of something to appease him. What if she remains alive while married to you? It can be done. She will be your wife, but she will stay among the living. Of course she won't be dead. Do you think I'm going to kill her? Like how you poisoned me? Why are you doing this to her then? She hasn't eaten or slept for two weeks. I could hardly believe myself for being brave enough to argue with the ghost of a boy that I killed. It's the only way for me to feel close to her now. I looked at my daughter and noticed that she had a sorrowful expression on her face. This is my chance. He still cares for her. I'll have to make him feel guilty about this. You have to let go of her now before we continue the ceremony. Where would she live once she is your wife? You have no family. This is the reason why I had to get you out of the way. No suitor would want to marry a woman who's being aggressively pursued by another man. And yet here we are. She'll still be your wife even if you're dead. I was starting to feel bold as I spoke those words to him. Mayfong's eyes started to fill with tears. I wondered if she would let us go after all. Father, did you really kill Jin? I startled. Is it you, my daughter? She nodded sadly and told me that even though she could not control her body, she could hear everything that transpired while she was possessed by Jin's spirit. I love him, father. How could you do that to him? He nearly killed you, and he threatened to kill your mother earlier. Didn't you hear that? I exclaimed. She shook her head. He was just saying that to get a confession out of you. Well, he killed the shaman. I reached out to hug her, but she stood up suddenly. Where are you going? I began, and then time seemed to stand still as I watched my daughter run towards the balcony before hurling herself over. A dreadful thud brought me to my senses, and I rushed over to the balcony, but it was too late. My beautiful daughter was already lying dead on the ground. Almost immediately, my vision went white before a fuzzy shape started appearing around me. There were two figures a few feet in front of me. I called out to them, but they moved further and further away until they disappeared, and I was alone again. This did not last long, as suddenly there was a low voice in my right ear and a soft one in my left ear. The ghostly whispers demanded that I perform my wedding for them, or they would haunt me in my dreams every night. My head was spinning so fast, and then suddenly everything stopped. My vision was back to normal, and I found myself sitting in Mei Fong's room. Su Ling was looking at me with a concerned look on her face. Was it a dream? Where's Mei Fong? I asked Su Ling. Her face went white as her lips quivered in an attempt to answer me. Where's our daughter? I demanded. Tears fell from her eyes as she choked up asking if I had forgotten that Mei Fong passed away yesterday. At least she is happy with Jin now, she said quietly. Jin, what? What happened? I asked, though I already knew the answer, and it made my stomach turn. Don't you remember that we had a wedding for our daughter last night? We dug up Jin's coffin and placed her body next to his. You said that that was her last wish. My last story is another horror story. It's called Mrs. Birch. Sometimes you just get sick of the neighbors, 
by Grim Flandango, published in the Kraken Lore. Now, this is a little bit longer than the other one, so bear with me. Mrs. Birch couldn't pinpoint the exact moment she began to hate her neighbors. There wasn't a specific event or action that changed things. It was just a gradual process that snuck up on her over time. It must have started after Philip passed. He'd always been the more social of the two. He knew all the neighbors. He knew the names of their kids and which ones were up for earning a little money shoveling the driveway or mowing the grass. But Philip had a massive heart attack ten years back, and Martin, their only child, had run out to California with some girl covering her tattoos and piercings. The neighbors were nice enough at first, but Mrs. Birch had never been good with people. Their attentions, even when well-meaning, made her uncomfortable. Gradually, the neighbors stopped coming by. Without Philip, the lawn fell into disrepair, and the paint on the house started wearing away. The weather cracked and buckled the driveway and front walk, and Mrs. Birch began emerging from the house less and less. Eventually, the rumors began. She could hear the wave of children outside, sneaking through her backyard, telling tales of the witch that lived inside, daring each other to get closer and closer to the house. The parents, of course, did nothing. In her day, parents kept their children firmly in line. These days, the children ran themselves. No one taught them any respect, not for people or property. And in the dim recesses of the house, Mrs. Birch's heart became blacker and blacker. When she was a little girl, she sat at the foot of her grandmother's chair and listened to her tell stories of the old country. That was how she referred to it, capital letters and all. She spoke of spirits and witches and dark curses. Her grandmother's world was one of shadow and mystery, and Mrs. Birch could not get enough of it. One day, she received an anonymous letter from one of the neighbors. It complained of the state of her house and yard. It referenced home values in the neighborhood and mentioned that each member of the community was responsible for the neighborhood's general reputation. Mrs. Birch stood in her kitchen, the letter clutched in her hand, feeling hot tears of anger and shame burning in her eyes. As she grew older, her grandmother's stories became more detailed. The old woman spoke of the magic in their family. She spoke of running naked through the woods, peeling to the old gods for a boon. She spoke of rituals of blood and bone and sacrifice. Her eyes gleamed as she told the tales. Mrs. Birch always thought that her grandmother was just telling tales, but on the long, dark nights of the year, she suspected the old woman believed what she said. Mrs. Birch had been something to see as she grew into a young woman. The men around her began to take notice almost immediately after her breasts began showing, and they never stopped. She had dark eyes and dark hair and strong but sensual features. She knew how to grin in a way that made her look like she had a secret. It looked that would weaken even the strongest boy's knees. She met Philip at the annual town carnival. He was a strapping young man, and he had just returned home from the Korean War. She liked his light blue eyes and the way they still retained an air of innocence despite what he must have seen. She came to love his guileless smile and affable nature. It was so different from her own and that of the world she'd grown up in. They spent most of that night together just talking. The next night, they went to the movies and shared an ice cream sundae. The night after that, Mrs. Birch took him to bed for the first time. That was always their way. She led that particular dance. Though she was no more experienced than he the first time, she had an instinct for the act. She moved comfortably as he fumbled and shook, but she was able to teach him soon enough. They moved to the neighborhood in the early 60s when the houses were still fresh and new. They settled in and made a life. As time went on, it was obvious that Mrs. Birch had the right genes for a long life. Her face remained unlined, while most women her age began obsessing over each divot and wrinkle. 
Her first gray hair didn't appear until she was well in her fifties. Even now, despite her advanced age, she looked healthy and strong, if a bit stooped and shrunken. Her grandmother had lived well past one hundred, and Mrs. Birch seemed destined for the same path. Not a single family on the block was left from the early days when she and Philip first arrived. Parents grew old and passed. The children moved far away. Sometimes Mrs. Birch would think of those days with deep nostalgia, but mostly they seemed like an entirely different life. In her old age, she was far more likely to cast her mind back further, past the days on this street, past the first days of her and Philip. She thought of her grandmother and his stories. She remembered everything from that time. There was a journal her grandmother had kept from her own youth. It was filled with tight scribbles and strange symbols. Mrs. Birch looked through it on occasion, but mostly it remained tucked away in a little box in the attic. During the warmer months, the children of the neighborhood grew bolder. Some of the older ones took to throwing eggs and other such things as they squealed away in their cars, breaking laughter like little donkeys. She made complaints to both the neighbors and the police, but she was met with stony indifference, even derision. There came a day, after some of the children had discovered the thrill of ringing her doorbell and escaping into the night, that Mrs. Birch made the arduous climb up the ladder into the attic and retrieved the box where the journal lay. She brought it into the living room, her heart fully hardened, and spent several days and nights reading. Some passages she read over and over again. She made notes on an old notepad she kept near a phone that never rang. When she finally felt she'd read enough, Mrs. Birch spent a long morning making herself presentable. Then she emerged from her den and entered the world. She, she went to the bank and withdrew a fair portion of her savings, much to the chagrin of the bank manager. He felt that she was too old to be making such choices on her own, but hardly had any recourse with which to stop her. The next several days, she left the house each morning and shopped. She purchased toys and games and art supplies from the local Walmart. She visited antique shops, looking for those knick-knacks that would catch the eye of a curious impulse shopper. She visited the local butcher with several requests. She even visited a farmer at one point and made a deal with the owner for one of his older goats. She did these things in small trips over those several days. She found that she tired easily, and of course she found that interacting with so many people was difficult for her. She would come home in the afternoons, organize her new hoard, and then fall into a deep slumber. When she was satisfied that she had enough, she brought the items down to her basement and arranged them in a circle. She took some thick sidewalk chalk that she'd purchased and drew a circle around the items. Next, she stepped within and drew another circle on the other side. She methodically and meticulously began drawing lines within smaller circles. She began by bisecting each with a line then further bisecting that section, and so on. To a casual observer, the resulting pattern would have looked utterly random, but most assuredly it wasn't. She was careful to stretch every line right to the edge of the circle without allowing it to stray outside the boundary. She further made sure to never step on the lines. She couldn't risk scuffing them. When she'd finished her design, she began drawing symbols in the spaces between the lines. She used a smaller piece of chalk for the fine details, and so she could fit all the symbols where that were needed. As she drew, she spoke out loud. The words were carefully memorized and spoken in an autonomous but sing-song voice. When the last symbol was finally complete, she stepped back and looked upon her work with great satisfaction. She then headed for her bedroom and fell into a deep and dreamless sleep, and she remained that way for three days. On the third day, as night fell and the moon began to rise, Mrs. Birch brought the goat in from the yard. She learned certain words from that journal that ensured the goat would remain docile and cooperative. 
she led it into the basement to a space not far from her circle. There she had drawn more symbols on the floor and up the wall. At the center was covered with a plastic tarp. She spoke out loud some more. It was a language she'd never heard nor seen other than in the journal. But somehow the meaning of the phrases they formed made perfect sense to her. As she spoke, she disrobed and placed her clothing in a neat pile off to the side. When she'd finished speaking, she slit the goat's throat and held a clyde copper bowl beneath the wound to catch the blood. She brought the bowl with her into the intricate circle she'd drawn up before, a full-length mirror set outside of the circle. She'd been careful to set it up perfectly so she'd be able to see herself clearly. She hummed as she dipped two fingers into the bowl and began tracing designs upon her face. When she finished her face, she moved on to her breast and stomach. She finished just above her pubis that she had meticulously shaped for this occasion. The blood on her skin felt like dying embers. When she was done, she laid the bowl aside and began to speak new words. She called upon the ancient gods, the gods from before time and space, the gods of the wild void. She offered herself as tribute. She called upon their servants to find purchase in the collection of items she laid out. With every new phrase, the dying embers on her skin seemed to flare with new life. As her incantation progressed, she had to struggle to continue as it felt like her flesh was searing. Slowly, the basement became bathed in shadow. The only illumination came from the circle itself. It was a cold, bluish, silver light. She could sense things in the darkness, unseen forms with black, malicious minds gathering and writhing. She felt the eye of something massive and incomprehensible turn to look upon her. She was struck with a deep, bottomless terror, but still she carried on. The fire upon her flesh reached a crescendo. The words she had been speaking were lost as she began to scream desperately. And the items surrounding her began to glow with unnatural colors, absent from any spectrum known to man. The blood on her skin boiled off in flashes of bright white flame. Mrs. Birch let loose one last all-encompassing scream before crumbling to the floor, her body and mind emptied of life. Next morning, the neighborhood woke to find signs hung on every telephone pole. Old Lady Birch had decided to hold a garage sale. It was all they could talk about. They told tales of the strange old lady who had let her house go to ruin. The old lady who only ever saw the light of day to complain about the kids of the neighborhood. Hushed tales were told of seeing her at one time or another. The kids told tales that were far more fanciful. Tales of moonlight escapades to steal babies and murder pets. The week progressed, and soon it was the weekend. The neighbors recognized their collective need to satisfy their morbid curiosity. The assumption was that they would just end up browsing a bunch of strange junk the woman threw into her driveway. Yet, when Saturday came, they found something quite different. The sun rose, and Mrs. Birch had already set up folding tables along the edges of her crumbling driveway. Each table was filled with a variety of items. As the neighbors stopped to get a quick look, they found themselves drawn in, fascinated by the things they saw. There was plenty for the kids to see. Toys and art supplies and all sorts of things that appeared to be brand new. Their collection led to much pleading by the use for their, to their parents. As for the parents, there was much to see as well. There were porcelain figurines, antique tea sets, paintings, and ornate frames. There were bits and baubles of all shapes and sizes, and every person that entered the yard seemed to find some item or another that personally called to them. Those with cash eagerly threw it at Mrs. Birch. She looked much older and frailer than she had before, but they were too preoccupied with their purchases to notice. Neighbors rushed off to ATMs to withdraw money from their accounts, each one feeling a species of panic that the thing they 
seeing that they had just had to have would be gone by the time they returned. As the day wore on, the tables grew emptier and emptier until Brian Foster, from the end of the street, took possession of, of a set of intricately painted rice bowls, rendering the entire setup bare. He left with a smile on his face as he considered the best place to display them and planned the next dinner party he would throw. Mrs. Birch watched him go with her own smile. She was exhausted, perhaps more exhausted than she's ever been. Her mind and body felt empty, hollow. So much of her had been burned away. But she could still feel the delight as she watched the house lights on the street turn on to battle the approaching night. In each of those houses, there was at least one newly acquired item. And each item had its own unique look and its own unique curse. The darkness that dwelled within them would make itself known soon enough, and the thing she had woken in the depths of her basement would have its true sacrifice, and Mrs. Birch would have her peace at last. So that's my last story of the week. I hope that one was scary enough for you. And as I leave you here this week, remember I'm not going to do any music this time, but I hope you enjoyed the show. I did give you no poems this week, but I will probably give you some next week. Uh, next week will be part two of the glacier. And so until next time, slantcha. Gora Mahagat. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Krona Beha Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Krona Beha Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I entertain you today. This is Shauna Kay. I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. May the roof overhead be well thatched and those inside be well matched. Shlongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish. 